You know, we do have proven projects throughout the world, and they are showing that this technology can deliver on capturing carbon. And we are also seeing huge next wave investments in this technology. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm sitting right next to Chris Sands at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hi, uh, Scotty. Hey, Chris. Good to be with you, my friend. Thanks yes. for hosting in your office again. Well, it's yeah, no, it's great to have you. It's always great to see you, but uh, now I actually have you right here with me. Here we are. We're like Muppets or something. I don't know. Anyway, we have a great <laughs> podcast today. I'm excited about our guests. We're going to talk about something that's in the news a lot for people that are following uh, climate change and carbon transition. We're going to talk about uh, a number of things, including carbon capture and storage, because it's something that people may not be familiar with if you're not in the industry, uh, but it's getting a lot of attention uh, in various sectors and in government circles and all of that. So I'm excited for the conversation and for our guests. And uh, let me turn it to you to introduce them. Excellent. Well, uh, Scotty, this is a real honor. We have two outstanding uh, experts for uh, for today's Canusa Street. The first is Lisa Jacobson, who's the president of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy, a 55-member trade association representing the energy efficiency, renewable energy, and natural gas industries. Ms. Jacobson has advised states and federal policymakers on energy, tax, air quality, and climate change issues, and she's a member of the Department of Energy's State Energy Efficiency Steering Committee, the United States Trade Representatives Environmental Policy Advisory Committee, and Gas Technology Institute's Public Interest Advisory Committee. So someone who can give and is sought out for her advice is going to share with us some of her insights. Alongside John Son, who is Director of U.S. Government Relations for Capital Power, uh, which is an independent power producer based in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And in this role, uh, Son is responsible for maintaining awareness of local, state, and federal legislative policy initiatives that stand to impact capital's powers existing or prospective commercial interest in the United States and developing and executing advocacy strategies with elected officials that may mitigate any potential risks to capital power, but also to maximize opportunities to support continued growth in the U.S. So so Capital Power is a great Canadian company doing business in the U.S. And I know this uh, because I work with them too, Chris. And John and I have known each other 100 years. So we're glad to have you both. Why Neither don't... of you looks 100 years old, there... I have to say. <laughs> there you go. Oh, good. So, the, the, so welcome. I, I mean, I guess I'd like to start out. Um, John and I have worked together uh, for a while. How how, John, did you become aware of Lisa's organization, the Business Council on Sustainable Energy? Because I know you're on her board of directors as well. So how did that all begin? Well, thanks for having me here today, Scotty and Chris. It's a real honor to be on your great podcast. I've been doing work with Lisa for, gosh, a long time now. We've been working on and off in different ways for several years in our career. And I think I first became aware of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy and Lisa's work there in the context of a previous role I had where I worked for a carbon market investment firm called Climate Change Capital that was based in London. And we were both at the Conference of the Parties Climate Change Negotiations in the early 2000s. And Lisa's organization was there and 
We were in some joint meetings together. That's probably how we started working closer together, engaging on business interests and at the international climate change negotiations. Wow. Well, what, one thing that's interesting. One thing we know for sure, Lisa, is that there's no way to get to a clean energy future without business at the table. So, uh, and and it's it's sort of vogue to say that right now. Um, I guess maybe it's uh, anti-vogue in some circles. But anyway, people realize it now. But but your organization's been out this for 30 years. So tell us a little bit about that. Where it all started for you. Well, I've been uh, honored to serve as the Business Council for Sustainable Energy's president for over a decade, but its beginnings were remarkably around the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, and the organization was formed in the lead up to those meetings because uh, energy executives from the United States felt that there were many technologies that were readily available, cost-effective, and put together in a portfolio could answer many of the challenges that um, this conference was exploring, and in particular, global climate change. So the Rio Earth Summit was the birth of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and council members have been participating in that forum ever since. And you're exactly right. Um, At that time, there was a, a real question both on really what kind of technology would be available to reduce emissions? And then, you know, who are the key actors? Um, would it be governments, solely governments? Or, you know, what was the public-private partnership model that would enable us to achieve our global environmental objectives? And I think, yes, there's a much um, more widely recognized view that really it is a partnership between states, uh, governments, sometimes state, national governments, um, and there are many coalitions and the private sector and its many partnership models. And the council is really kind of a, a great example of an organization of companies that really want to lean in and be a resource and work directly with communities and policymakers to ensure we have the right policy frameworks so that we can make the really important, urgent, significant investments that we will need to make to reduce emissions. Well, let me let me pick up on that and ask for a moment and ask both of you. Uh, critics in the environmental community would say that some of these technologies that businesses are thinking about to uh, address carbon, abate emissions, things like carbon capture and storage, carbon capture and utilization are really just a way to kind of greenwash their activities and prolong the use of fossil energies in a way that's counterproductive. What do you what do you say to those critics? John, you want to jump in on that? Sure. Well, Capital Power is an independent power producer, and our portfolio is a mixture of renewable energy, including several solar and wind projects that we've developed, and we are continuing to actively develop more, as well as acquiring existing natural gas assets in our portfolio. And we're on a journey to net zero emissions by 2045 with very specific targets and timetables along the way to achieve that net zero goal. And we're doing that in a way that is mindful of the fact that we have to provide reliable and affordable energy to utilities and their customers along the way in that journey. And that's why natural gas is an important part of our strategy. It's cleaner than coal, it's cleaner than some other dirty energy sources. And yes, it has greenhouse gas emissions, but it ends up being reliable and affordable as well. And, um, that's why we think that carbon capture and storage, which can reduce the emissions while providing that reliability and affordability, is an important part of our net zero package. So right now, we're not in a position globally um, 
in, as an industry as a whole to just go to 100% renewables. There just isn't enough long duration storage or other technologies to bridge the gap, the um, uncertainty sometimes of wind and, 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 and solar to ensure constant reliability of, of power to people. So we're, while we're on this journey, we're gonna need carbon capture and storage as one solution among many to get there. And it's not just our opinion, but more importantly, it's the position of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate, which is made up of hundreds of scientists from over 80 countries around the world, and they are the key scientists that advise the climate change negotiations internationally. And the IPCC recently came out with their sixth assessment report, which says we've already reached a temperature of 1.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures, and global greenhouse gas emissions are continuing to increase. And current pledges under the Paris Agreement are insufficient to stay under this 1.5 degree um, threshold. And then within that report, there was a working group on climate mitigation policy. And the, there the scientists found that actively removing carbon from the atmosphere and working on carbon capture utilization and storage strategies are key parts of meeting these global warming goals. So I would start there with critics in that this is the science. This is what the key advisors are telling us. And we can't just pick and choose when we listen to scientists to fit some specific narrative. And here they're telling us quite clearly we need an all of the above approach that includes carbon capture and storage. Uh, thanks for that. So Lisa, just building on that, so the first argument of critics would be um, you're prolonging fossil fuels. And John, you know, I think address the urgency very well. A related criticism, if you will, or a myth maybe to be busted or a fact to be confirmed is that it's awfully expensive to do this, that it's not an economic proposition. What do you and your members say to that, that this, this idea of carbon capture and that kind of a mitigation is just not realistic because it's too expensive. Well, first of all, I totally agree with John that we need a portfolio of technologies, technologies that we are aware of today and technologies that we may not yet even know about, right? This is a very significant and global economy-wide transition that we are involved in. And we need to make sure that, again, we are protecting communities and households and citizens all over the world um, from high prices for energy, which is really the lifeblood of societies. And we still have billions of people on this planet that don't have adequate energy access. So we need to be mindful of affordability along this journey as much as we are um, the environmental aspects of what we are trying to accomplish. With regard to carbon capture and storage and also carbon capture utilization and storage, you know, we do have uh, proven um, projects throughout the world um, and they are showing that this technology can deliver on capturing carbon. And we are also seeing huge next wave investments in this technology. And here in the United States, we have a, no, a number of new examples just in the last couple of years that I think will dramatically reduce the cost and scale of this technology here in North America. We already have leaders like Capital Power that have been involved um, in utilizing this technology and have made it 
core parts of their energy transition plans. They are not alone. And, you know, even just, you know, a week ago, the Environmental Protection Agency released a power plant uh, emissions reduction rule for greenhouse gases and carbon capture and storage uh, may be a, a huge uh, compliance strategy coming from that that rule if it becomes finalized. But I, d I don't think you could talk to any industrial or large um, electricity producer and not have them be considering whether carbon capture and storage should be part of their emissions reduction strategies to some extent. So lastly, you know, in terms of reducing costs, we have significant investments that were enacted into law through the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, building on existing tax measures to support carbon capture and storage. storage. So really leveraging private sector dollars to deploy this technology. So I think we are at a critical time. Um, and the good news here, this has bipartisan political support for this technology. So I believe that these supportive policy frameworks will be maintained over the next five, 10 plus years. So we will really be able to make this a competitive technology and one where I think you will see many more uh, power and industrial sector players utilizing. That's a that that's well said. And if I could ask you both a little bit, you know, we, we really are interested in Canada, and the US, both sides of our Canusa Street. How how do you think the two countries are doing um, in, in their efforts and how do the two of them interact? Obviously, if Canadian companies are attracted by some of the benefits or the opportunities created by the IRA and, and some other recent U.S. legislation, but Canada has a carbon tax and has had other measures. Where do you think, uh, I guess I should structure this so that you know how to respond, but maybe starting with what are the relative strengths of Canada versus the United States in the sustainability and energy transition space? And Lisa, can I ask you first and then we'll come to John? Well, I, I think, as I just mentioned, you know, Yes, it's been a um, up and down road, especially at the federal level when it comes to supportive technologies for reducing greenhouse gas emissions specifically and um, having clean energy deployment policies, again, at the federal level. Um, then we also you know, have a lot of decision making at the state and local level that impacts both industrial as well as power sector decision making. So it's not all a federal show here you know it's very interconnected to to what decisions are made locally but nonetheless our our history has been um innovative in terms of the approaches the federal government has taken in the tax code or through regulatory processes but it has been um on and off we now have um a historic set of investments and very importantly broad-based so that they are not picking technology and winner technology winners um, or losers here, and they fit the project development cycle. We've got a ten year runway now. It used to be with tax credits for many of these sectors, they were one or two years at best, and you know it takes much longer to get a project permitted, cited, and um, up and running in many cases. So I think we're really at a, a critical moment here that will catapult us to the next wave of the energy transition. Um, John, let me turn to you and, and ask you a little bit about Canada um, and, and where Canada might be strong. I, I was struck recently, there was a discussion of the US having done, created a Great Lakes Authority to be able to invest in the Great Lakes. And 
Uh, that's after years of not doing very much. And uh, no sooner do we launch our plan than we turn around and say, Canada, why aren't you catching up? But you, Canada's been ahead of the U.S. on some of these areas. How, how do you think Canada's playing right now uh, in terms of policy support for the transition? Sure. It's really interesting working for a Canadian company uh, here in the U.S. in the electricity space because Canadians have done so much in this sector that the U.S. has not acted upon that could make such a big difference, primarily around setting a price on carbon and using that policy approach to drive innovation and a low-carbon future in the electricity sector and other sectors. Additionally, in Canada, federal laws there have completely uh, decided to get out of coal by 2030. And these sorts of initiatives and policy pronouncements set in motion a number of things where Capital Power itself decided to get off coal by 2023, the end of 2023, much earlier than the 2030 target. On one of your previous podcasts, my colleague Kate Chisholm uh, was on. She talked about our efforts at the Genesee Power Station in Alberta where we're moving from coal to gas by the end of 23. And then as soon as 2027, working with other industrial partners and First Nations, we're looking to be completely in the carbon capture and storage game, reducing up to 95% of our emissions um, over time. So that's all driven by carbon pricing, provincial and, and federal policy and investment efforts. And there's a lot of learning when I talk about um, these policies in the United States and a lot of interest from politicians here in the United States in what's going on in Canada. So so this is an interesting discussion. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, um, I'd like to ask, Chris manages to work in something about Michigan in every podcast, <laughs> I think. It's like a Where's Waldo because he's a Detroit guy. Um, so when we come back, I'd like to uh, pick up on the Great Lakes uh, theme here, Chris, and and uh, talk to John about Capital Power's recent investments in Michigan. And then we'll, we'll talk about the region more generally right after the break. Are you red, white, and blue, or just red and white? Beaver or bald eagle? Ryan Reynolds or JLo? Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already, that's why you're here. The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do. How about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-US relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. We're having a conversation today with Lisa Jacobson of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy and John Son from Capital Power. Uh, and when we were at the break, we had you, Scotty, ready to ask a question. So let over to you. <laughs> Well, I don't mean to steal your thunder, my friend. You always ask the Michigan questions, but you started talking about the Great Lakes. And John, talk to us a little bit about what Capital Power is doing. You mentioned Tennessee Valley Authority and, and all of that. What are you guys up to in, in Michigan these days? Well, sure. First of all, go blue. There's no one who likes talking about the state of Michigan more than this University of Michigan graduate. So thanks for the question. Last year at the end of 2022, Capital Power acquired the Midland Cogeneration Venture in Midland, Michigan, which is the largest cogen natural gas facility in the United States. And we have a, a nice uh, power purchase agreement with the utility in the state, Consumers Energy, and then steam offtake agreements with partners, Dow and Corteva AgriScience. And it's a really important part of the industrial hub there in Michigan. 
and we're really proud to be a part of the state in a big way. And going forward, we're looking at the governor there, Governor uh, uh, Whitmer's healthy climate plan and her decarbonization goals and other challenges they're having in the state around reliability. And we're looking at, at strategic ways we can make this plant a long-term partner in the future of that clean energy agenda that they have in Michigan. In Michigan, we're also looking at four to five solar projects, utility-scale solar pod projects in different parts of the state, which are early days, but we're optimistic we can get something done there as well. So the Michigan and Midwest is a really big part of our plans in the United States going forward. Um, Lisa, on May the 3rd, uh, U.S. Ambassador to Canada David Cohen came to the Wilson Center in order to make an interesting case, which was that uh, the, the Biden administration's energy uh, transition programs, Build Back Better, IRA, and so on, had really... The administration worked hard to open up opportunities for Canadian companies to participate, despite some of the complaints that were out there in the media about, you know, the U.S. is going into industrial policy in a big way and it's protectionist and it's America first and freezing the Canadians out. Uh, in your sense, is that part in part related to what you were saying at the outset, which is that it, unlike the classic bad industrial policy a model where government's picking winners, you really are open to the participation of firms with ideas, whether they're on the Canadian side of the border or the U.S. side of the border, in order to get us to where we need to go faster? Or, or, or are you worried that the Canadian participation is a liability, uh, that we should, we should be America first on this? Well, I agree with you. I, I, I mean, I understand the concerns and questions that other uh, countries have had with regard to trade implications of some of our laws. And we would be asking those same questions and are as, as other um, like the European Union and Canada and others kind of reevaluate how to think about these new policies that the U.S. has established. But I mean, I see it as a win-win for everybody. Right. Um, and as you, we already discussed, Canadian, the Canadian government has already been a leader in areas where Vista the Canadian government has already been a leader in areas where the United States has not, like on a price on carbon, as John mentioned, which is something that the Business Council for Sustainable Energy has really looked to. And we've seen it in different forms in the United States. And we've seen it at a regional level, like the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative or some of California's cap and trade program, but we haven't seen it at a national level. So there's areas where other parts of the world have been leaders. And we've tried to learn from that here in the United States. And I think the same is true with the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Chips and Science Act. But what it says to me is come and invest in the United States and think about the United States as an attractive place to help us improve and modernize our energy system. And we will all benefit from that because the innovations that will be happening in the United States will be spread to other parts of the world and vice versa. So um, I, I think it's overall important for the U.S. to establish priorities. We've never really had a national energy strategy, and I don't really think this necessarily is either. But I think it's a big shift to prioritize manufacturing and investment in the United States and a realization that our supply chains and our energy system both needs to be improved, modernized, um, and rethought in a digital economy. But, you know, we need to have um, more safeguards so that it's reliable and secure. 
Oh, that, that, that's well said. Um, and John, I'm going to turn to you on this. One of the things that the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement has in its terms is the idea that it would be legal and possible to have a border adjustment fee if, for example, Canada wanted to impose one on imports from the United States that had paid no carbon price. And this is one of those concerns they have in a, in a carbon pricing system is that you have leakage or the companies that pay that are going to have to compete with companies that don't and that'll push their costs up. We're a ways away from that, but it, do you think that that sort of in the USMCA is going to drive a conversation about the US pricing carbon, maybe not in exactly the same way, or can we survive with a carbon pricing system on one side of the border and then a, a, a different kind of approach here in the United States? Well, I think it would be great for the US to develop a price on carbon and provide that certainty for investment long term that could drive even deeper reductions um, in the US. It would be a really important game-changing step if we could move towards that in the coming years. And I also think that um, a harmonized North American approach with Canada to carbon pricing would create economic advantages uh, for uh, for everybody in North America on both sides of the border. So, and that being said, I think some of the cleanest industries in the world are already here in the U.S., and we can compete. Um, with a, um, any sort of border tariff adjustments that might come our way from Canada and elsewhere, uh, Europe, perhaps. And there are even discussions um, in Congress about implementing our own border adjustment um, prior to even adopting a carbon price here in the United States, because some have that optimism. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to compete and the inflation reduction investments and large sums of money for decarbonization out of uh, the Department of Energy will benefit us in competing globally as this trade debate keeps moving forward. Well, we're coming towards the uh, home stretch here in this wonderful conversation. I think what I'd like to do is ask our guests something that we do at the Greenwood family dinner table um, from time to time where we talk about our day and we ask for a rose and a thorn. So something that you're worried about and something that you're excited about or happy about. And so I wanna ask each of our distinguished guests um, when you think about the energy transition and where we are um, in North America, what do you worry about the most? And then what do you think is the most promising? And Lisa, we'll start with you. Okay. Um, I think I'm an optimist person. So I'm going to start with, you know, what makes me most happy. And I think, you know, just even reflecting on our conversation, this becomes a little more crystallized. When I got into the industry, um, I actually was focused on the North American free trade agreement and what it would do for global environmental issues. So I was not an energy practitioner at the time, but I was always told, you know, we don't have a U.S. energy market. We have a North American energy marketplace, right? So when I think about the technologies and the different policies that um, the United States, Canada, and Mexico are, are considering and their market structures, it gives me a lot of hope because there is a big diversity there and a lot of learning. And we still have the opportunity to really be a North American energy transition hub globally. So that that makes me feel good. Um, I think what I'm worried about is the, uh, the con continued polarization um, of the politics, and maybe it's more in the U.S. than it is in North America at large, because it's it's creating inertia 
And we've had inertia in terms of improving many of our energy policies and our infrastructure policies over decades, but we don't have time to waste. And so I'm concerned that um, both the challenge with addressing some of these issues, because if they were easy, they would have been addressed before, but you know the um, challenges with addressing some of the policy changes that will be needed over the next five, 10 years um, will only be further hindered by a polarized political environment here in the United States. Gosh, Lisa, you couldn't have um, teed up any better the uh, our previous podcast, which people can look up, which is about uh, the ESG debate in the in the U.S. How polarized that is, um, and we call it woke versus anti woke backlash. And we had a Canadian CEO, actually, that's a good friend of John's and mine, Reg Manhas from mm -hmm. Lapis Energy, talking about how he had to take ESG off his business card in Texas for his company there. They do carbon capture, uh, but they call it how to abate heavy emitters. Um, so they just have to use different language. So I think you're exactly right. Polarization is a huge um, is a huge hurdle and a risk for people trying to do just trying to do business. So so with that, we'll turn it over to John for your rose and your thorn. Thanks, Scotty. Well, I'm, I'm glad Lisa is an optimist. We need optimism in our work and uh, as much as possible every day. And I think on a day-to-day -day basis, though, I'm sort of an optimist uh, as well, but I also have to balance that with the urgency and the two things uh, go together for me and are things I think about every day in my work. Um, I think there's been a lot of great unprecedented legislation passed in the U.S. that, frankly, I wasn't so sure would get done with regard to the Inflation Reduction Act, and then billions of dollars going out through the infrastructure bill for decarbonization. And these two legislative initiatives, coupled with other things going on in the Biden administration right now, gives one hope and optimism that we can begin to tackle climate change, at least from the U.S. perspective, over the next few decades. So I'm really excited about that and what that's unleashed financially. But then when I think about the urgency side, I think about the challenges that remain to get us where we need to get in terms of net zero or decarbonizing the economy here in the United States. And really, I think about two challenges that have a, a, a great amount of urgency. One is permitting and transmission, building transmission and getting uh, things in place to ramp that up at a significant pace so we can bring more clean energy online. And that's an ongoing debate that has both challenges on the far right and left to getting done in Congress and then passed into law by President Biden. And then I think about a lot of, about the challenges um, for anybody working on climate change in the private se sector and the importance of dealing with local engagement issues that are really going to be tough to deal with and manage and have to innovate in the coming years. For instance, there's increasing opposition in some rural areas of the country uh, to renewable energy, pr primarily from my perspective around polarization of political issues, as Lisa said but also changes in lifestyles in some areas where, for instance, in a farming area, some days um, there's a lot of solar opportunity, uh, but um, those changes to agricultural communities can be quite jarring in some respects. So there's a lot of challenges out there in terms of local licenses to operate for companies like ours. And then for the heavy decarbonization in other industrial sectors, environmental justice issues and the legacy issues that we have to deal with and with respect to cleanup or impacts on communities that have been dealing with the fossil fuel industry for a long time, for example. And now we're asking them to uh, support and um, authorize decarbonization projects from those very same industries in their communities. 
So I think there's a lot to think about there going forward, both in terms of urgency and optimism. Wow. Well, this has been one of our, I think it'll be, go down in our Hall of Fame of great episodes because one thing you both share, Lisa Jacobs and John Son, is an ability to take a very complicated policy area and be convey the issues in a very reasonable way so it, it and understandable, which I quite appreciate. So thank you both very, very much for joining us. Lisa Jacobson, president of the Business Council of Sustainable Energy, John Sun, director for U.S. Government Relations and Capital Power. You are real stars, and we're really grateful for your time and for coming on to Canusa Street with us. Thank you for having me, and, and of course, it's great to be with John. Thank you all for this opportunity. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, I'll, I'll listen to the Canusa Street podcast going forward a lot. Thank you. Okay, Chris, well, we had we have what we called before our most captivating episode ever, and that was with another Capital Power executive, Kate Chisholm, in uh, Edmonton, who has since retired from mm. a long and distinguished career. Um, and it was Kate, and it was Chief Billy Morin, and it was a, uh, an executive from Enbridge, and they were talking about their hub facility that they're investing in in Alberta. So I thought it was good to get to the U.S. side of the equation with Lisa Jacobson and John Sohn. Uh, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was really interesting. And in light of some of the recent news from the IPPC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, suggesting that we're a little behind where we'd like to be in terms of addressing uh, the amount of uh, temperature increase uh, on average in the year, you know, to hear them talking about the way in which recent U.S. legislation and some of the Canadian technology are working together and that, you know, the problems everywhere, but that there's a real Canada-U.S. partnership in addressing these issues, I think is uh, is outstanding. And it was a good news story, but a good news that came from experts who really know their stuff. Well, that's right. And also, John reminded us about the urgency of the situation. And it's hard, I think, from a policy point of view and from a civic involvement point of view to keep banging the drum on something that is such a long-term problem and remind people that um, don't fatigue of the issue. It's urgent and we need to focus on it. And so kudos to Lisa and John for the work they're doing there. I agree. And, and if there's one thing that I took away from this that was really encouraging, it's that uh, the, the governments in North America are finding ways to work together. And yes, there are potential flashpoints and a little competition there that could lead to disputes. You never know. So far, the level of cooperation has been at the standard that we expect for Canada-U.S. relations. And, uh, and that's good to hear. I think a lot of countries are struggling with this. Canada-U.S. seem to have uh, an alignment, and it's an alignment that's getting us results. Well, we're, yeah, the, our two countries are working on this. We're working on semiconductors, working on a lot of things. This is a big week in Washington for Canadian visitors. You were at a summit on energy. I was just with a couple of ministers a few moments ago. So, um, yes, lots of bilateral work uh, underway and more to come. More to come. Well, uh, Scotty, another great day on Canusa Street. Great day on the street. Great day in the hood. Thanks, Chris. We'll see you next time. See you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.